to another episode of Savage Minds. I'm your host, Julian Vigo. Today's guest is Jason D. Hill, a professor of philosophy and honors distinguished faculty at DePaul University in Chicago. He's the author of five books, including We Have Overcome, An Immigrant's Letter to the American People. His forthcoming book will be published by Emancipation Books. Simon & Schuster is entitled What Do White Americans Owe Black People? Racial Justice in the Age of Post-Oppression. Dr. Hill specializes in ethics, politics, foreign policy, and moral psychology. I welcome Jason Hill to Savage Minds. I would like to address some of the articles that you've written in very recent years, beginning with the one you wrote in Front Page Magazine, I believe it was last year, where you talk about Black victimologists. And you said, if Black victimologists hate America by virtue of their suffering and historical exclusions from mainstream society, then left-wingers can gain street credibility by enlisting their Black brothers and sisters in hatred and solidarity. This is this struck me. It really reminded me of the way I've been saying things as well about identity politics in recent years. Because you you say what the bourgeois alt left lack in personal oppression, they make up for in their righteous indignation over the plight of black victimization. Right. And uh, since black victims often lack the institutional resources to showcase their suffering and perceived hopelessness to a large audience. What better way for left-wingers to make themselves useful than by atoning for their social insignificance and irrelevance by creating a performance on behalf of the victims? Wow, this blew my mind because (laughs) I am, I confess to you now, I am a leftist, but I'm a leftist who's, I'm quite revolted by the way in which I see this as a lot of upper-class elite often white, what they call progressives, they like to think of themselves as progressive, using the identities of black people as their their flag that they wave. And it has played a huge role in American and now overseas as well, we're seeing this with what Macron said last week about you know France getting infected by this ideology, but the victimology that we're seeing all around, because it's not just black victimology, it's it's trans victimology. It's you know, everyone's a victim. It's like who isn't a victim, Jason? Well, this is the thing. I mean, there are real victims in the world. I'm having. It's been, and I identify as a conservative independent. You know, I I voted for the Democratic Party. Um, I didn't vote in this election, but in the previous election, I voted for Mrs. Clinton and I voted for Obama. But um, this is the thing that having worked with um, both stateless people and having worked with um, orphans in Peru and Mexico, I I know what real victims look like. And, And there are disenfranchised people and voiceless people. And there are legitimate victims of racism, um, people who have no recourse to the law and are defenseless. But I think what has happened is that there, there exists a managerial class of elite um, liberals who want to expropriate the agency of people who just by virtue of their skin color, they assume that they must be victims and that they have no capabilities at all of their own to make something of their lives, to uplift their lives through their own agency. And not just expropriate their agency, but also um, deprive them of the possibility of managing their own lives and taking care of their own lives and authoring a script of their own that can um, not just 
I would I, the, the word uplift is often upused is is often overused. Not just author uh, a way of uplifting their lives, but also navigating their way through life in its challenges. That is, they don't really believe they have a sort of contempt for minorities and it's a veiled kind of contempt because what it says is that if you are a minority, whether you're black or if you're gay, but let's stick with, with, with racial minorities. And in some sense, you are handicapped by the intrinsic bigotry and intrinsic injustices that suffuse your society. That is, there's also some sort of hyperbole going on and a failure to redress or address, I should say, the historical progresses that have made that have been made in the United States of America that is and I say this quite emphatically having lived here for um, 35 years now I came here when I was 20 that I don't think race is determinant of destiny as it once was during slavery and certainly during the Jim Crow era that is having been granted full legal standing before the law blacks can use the law to their advantage and race is no longer determinant of destiny but it's as if a lot of these i would use the term managerial liberals on the alt left act as if we're living in circa mississippi in 1950 and refuse to see the attendant changes that have been made and uh treat treat a lot of blacks as if they are still living on under the circumstances that predate the 1964 civil rights act well, I know coming into contact with these individuals, even virtually, I have to say that their attitude to me smacks much more of racism than a lot of racism I've come across in my life. Mm -hmm. It's this kind of paternalistic, we'll take care of you nonsense that I then find replicated when it comes to the gender wars and other issues. What I find interesting is you, you point out to something that also Adolf Reed has pointed out, and you guys come from very different political perspectives, but he makes a trenchant critique of the managerial class. And this has infected the left uh, badly, such that the left is, in this last year, wouldn't we think the left would be worried about the millions of people who cannot pay rent? We're mm -hmm. not seeing that. We're not even seeing that in Europe, by the way. And we're not seeing the left really embrace working class rights. We're seeing the left embracing, you know, <laughs> how the media covers a Black Lives March or the fact that I recently covered the January 6th protest in DC. Obviously we know what happened inside the Capitol, but it's shocking to me how few media outlets covered the tens of thousands of peaceful marchers outside. And you, you mm -hmm. revert back to last summer and it was the inverse. It was the media bending over backwards to excuse the burning, mm -hmm. the harassment, even deaths in order to say, but, but most of the people were peaceful, which is true. Most of the people were peaceful, but there was this, it, it's, it's an incongruous approach to how the left and the right are covered mediatically. And we've seen it now, we've just seen it. And I'm coming from the left and I'm like, but what about the, t I want to know what the people on Capitol Hill were doing and saying. I mean, yes, I'm not QAnon. I'm very far to the left, but I still think that if we're going to live in something we want to call a democracy, we should be minimally curious about what they were saying. Right. Yet, we're not, as a liberal culture of sorts, a lot of those voices on the right are not getting heard. Why is that? Well, I think, you know, I, as a philosopher, I think this is an issue of um, 
this, this really for me is a philosophical issue that is, I mean, I was trained as a journalist before I was trained as a philosopher in the harsh crucibles of Jamaican politics back in the 19, the mid 80s as a young teenager. And I must say that this is an issue of, um, this is an issue of cultural relativism, an absence of, of the belief in objectivity. And I see this in my journalism students that I think predates back to the 1960s during the, I think the cultural wars are, didn't start in the 1980s and the 1990s. I think they began in the, 19, in, the in the late phase of the civil rights war with the, the, the emergence of these, these disciplines like black studies and women's studies and Chicano studies and gay and lesbian studies and post-colonial studies, which, which I think stemmed from both nefarious and noble impulses at the same time. They stem from a position of advocacy, which was quite noble, generated through multiculturalism to give voiceless and previously disenfranchised people um, a voice, but something quite uh, nefarious happened. What happened was that something, what I call standpoint epistemology and others have referred to it as that occurred. That is identity politics began to rear an ugly part of its head. I don't think all of identity politics is necessarily bad, but there's a part of identity politics that uh, uses feelings and uses um, identity as the only means of appraising um, situations. And so there began an attack on reason, there began an attack on logic, there began an attack on Western civilization as a sort of constructs of white racist European males to suppress um, minorities. And this, this insidious attack on, on objectivity and, on, and, and the promotion of something like uh, what I call competing epistemology, that women had their own epistemology, that men, blacks had their own epistemologies, and there was no universally shared standard by which we could all appeal to, to adjudicate among truth claims became the norm. And as a professor in the classroom of 24 years, this is something I'm fighting. And I think this has infected the world of journalism where um, journalists no longer go out and think that we are looking for the truth, we're looking for uh, well, we're looking for many things. We're looking for ratings, first of all, and we're looking for sensationalism, and we're looking for a kind of what I call perspectivalism. That is, we're looking for the the subjective um, truths of many, many different groups, and those groups are partitioned into races and ethnics and different demographics. And so what we have are just people who are in their own little curated silos and their bubbles who think they have a coercive monopoly on the truth, um, Justin, but they don't, they really, they don't. And so I think it goes back to, dare I say, I used to be a part of this group, an outlier, but the Frankfurt School, um, I used to go to Prague every year and I'm friends with a lot of these people because I'm an intellectual and I, and I was partnered with a, a socialist and a quasi-communist for 14 years. <laughs> And we had we had various disagreements. I being a, an advocate of capitalism and being a conservative, um, uh, I, a liberal at the time, I considered myself not an independent and liberal. But um, I think you know, with the Frankfurt School, and um, but I, I would really date it with dated back to the the rise of what I call revolutionary victim studies, that deliberately wage an assault on and standpoint epistemologies emerging from these studies that were not bad things in and of themselves in the sense that again um, giving a voice to 
previously exclude people who are excluded from the domain of the ethical and the pantheon of the human community. But when advocacy and ad activism replace scholarship and learning and deep learning, and when over time um, they supersede the goals of an education, which among other things is to equip students with critical thinking skills and uh, to have a profound respect for uh, an objective method of a universally shared objective method of appraising and, and, and assessing knowledge and truth claims. We are seeing, so I'm giving a very, what I think is a philosophical answer um, to the problems that are affecting not just journalism, we see the attack on science, for example, that no, you know, Chaucer has been canceled in England, Shakespeare is about to be canceled in in the United States of America, because Shakespeare is a white imperialist, a su white supremacist. I mean, that's just it's just happening now. He's um, also Homer, cis. He's also cisgender. <laughs> um, Homer has been canceled in a couple of high schools in um, in the United States of America. So we see the result in, in cancel culture in the sense that none of these thinkers could have captured something um, about the human condition that uh, and Rutgers University has declared the English grammar by the way racist in America. Uh, so there's the idea that any of these thinkers, these canonical thinkers, could have captured something universal about the human condition that is that that's timeless and that is shared across, you know, the, the vast swath of, of human types that we find is really lost upon people. We just this is the ugly part of identity politics that is. You know, that someone only of your kind, of my kind, or one's kind, let's say, you know, uh, representation boils down to racial or ethnic representation, not, not something that is shared across the human, the human race. And there's this idea that there's an intrinsic, I call it original sin, privilege. White people are privileged. Heterosexual, cisgendered. I mean, that word, sis, I find absolutely revolting. It, it's this weird word that attempts to normalize everyone else as if, as if everyone else has a, a picnic of a time of life. You know, I've been covering the trans issue for almost a decade now, because mm -hmm. as someone who, don't kill me, but I have taught queer theory in the day before it jumped the shark, when it was more Eve Sedgwick from Duke or Michael Moon, literary readings of, right. of homosexual desire, before it jumped the shark, because nowhere in my readings of it in the early 90s was there any nonsense about mandatory changing of, of identity papers, of mandating ideology into law. Uh, I do take issue also with the feminists today who say it's all Foucault's fault because this is absolutely not what Foucault, you know, his writings on biopower, I think are pretty clear. But I do really have a problem with what has become, you say the cult of victimology, I think it's a great uh, bookmark for what's happening because it's not only big business when we start to look at what's happened in the UK with the Tavistock Clinic and the scandals around the mass transing of children, which has been unveiled now in law. I mean, there's been a huge legal case that is going to be revisited very soon. But the person who won their case, her case, was a, a young woman who was sort of brought into this cult of gender ideology and, and had 
lifelong repercussions and likely sterilization because of mm -hmm. this. And I have to say that I, as a gay woman, <laughs> I have an issue with what to me has all the hallmarks of gay conversion therapy when you start mm -hmm. to look at what's happening to gay youth. But for all of the, the derivative nonsense that I've seen going on over the past years around true identity and becoming one's true self and being brave and the horror show of the Jazz Jennings reality TV, I, I do question our ethical imbalance on the left because it's more people on the right who are the adults in the room over this. Why has the left gotten on, which is to me a 21st century circus? And I mean the word circus in the true sense of like the World's <laughs> Fair when they would bring up like the hot and tot Venus, which was a cruel thing that happened to this woman in the World's Fair in Paris. Right. Or skip to all the other natives they brought from the Philippines, from South America, put in cages and made them into cruel spectacles. Although for the Westerners entertainment, but we're, we're reliving this with Jazz Jennings and I have seen few to no critiques of this in major media. Well, speaking as a gay man, I have to say, someone posed this question to me and I said, one of the things that happens with, with honorable activism, and I said, you know, the, 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 the wonderful thing about the gay rights movement, you know, stemming from um, the, 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 the drag queens mourning the death of, of Judy Garland and saying, we'll take this no more and storming and, and, and power to the drag queens. I mean, these are the uns, one of the, some of the unsung heroes of that people, the kids today forget that the drag queens were the ones who fought back and, and, and really started giving moral, a more legitimacy to the, to the gay rights movement um, and saying no more sodomy laws, government get out of our bedrooms. Um, is that one of the things that happens when, so I wanna speak for, first about, you know, the more legitimacy of the gay rights movement that started I, I, I mean, it started long before then, but in, in an underground way, but in a public way when the drag queens fought back and throughout the 70s, uh, when gay activists were, were had the, the, the weight of ethicality on their side and were saying that we just, we want the rights that heterosexuals have. Um, in 2015 with the Marital Equality Act, a moral victory was really had and achieved by gays and lesbians. But I think what happens is that quite often when victories are earned, people have to continue their careers. And this is not to say that prejudices and injustices um, will no longer be visited upon one. I mean, we saw during the Trump administration, much to my horror, the, the, his attempts to undermine some of these victories uh, in his own circuitous and not so circuitous ways undermine some of these hard fought victories that gays and lesbians had, had, had forged in the crucibles of oppression. But I think what's happening is that some of the moral credibility that gays and lesbians had fought for decades are being unquestioningly transferred over to the trans movement and the gays and lesbians are ceding that power without subjecting what trans people are claiming are universal rights whether they're really, really universal rights. So I think this, this often happens with, with left-wing movements that um, I think the same thing with the women's movement that was an, an honorable, of course, and an and, and ethical movement. Um, the trans movement, I think in some way are, is trying to appropriate some of the legitimacy of the feminist movement and 
I think paradoxically, it's old school feminists who are saying no. There is no such thing as a as a, a a trans woman who's a biological male, who has the right to take away hard earned scholarships that women on track teams, on wrestling teams, have fought for in colleges and in high school, but mainly colleges. There is no constitutional, there's no civil right that such women have against these men. And they're, they're saying, not on our watch is this going to happen. And also female athletes who I know speaking up and saying, uh, girl power that we fought for from we were two years old that our moms taught us does not include, I'm sorry, trans women. We, girl power meant girls, who are girls and that's us, you know? And you, you're seeing slowly the slight resistance to this. So I wanna stick with your answer. I think this is, this is what often happens with a lot of, I think, left-wing um, identitarian or left-wing um, movements that started out legitimately, morally, um, some of them have a problem going into retirement when they should be going into semi-retirement or scaling back a little bit. I don't think anyone should go, any movement should go into retirement because that presupposes that uh, there's some sort of universal and unilateral justice that has been achieved, but scaling back a little bit or, uh, so they, some, they need to keep their careers going and to keep their careers going, I think they give a sort of blanket endorsement to other movements that need to be checked I need to be questioned. And this is not to, to put down trans, trans, the trans movement at all, uh, because like I said, individuals need to be treated with dignity and respect, but it needs the, some of the rights that are being associated with trans rights. Uh, I don't think that 12 year old girls have a right to have a double mastectomy and have their, their uteruses taken out by the time they're 17 or th that's not a universal right and, and for, now the gay movement to be saying we stand in solidarity with this seems very, very disturbing to me. That plus the idea that it's somehow brave and the kind of backslaps and kudos that even their parents are getting. Parents who oftentimes when you read the Tavistock reports on mm -hmm. what their clinicians have noticed is, yes, there are a lot of homophobic parents very happy to say their daughter is really a guy rather That's than right. a lesbian. And this just makes me back up quite a bit. On top of the fact, when I started writing about this back in 2013, I, I honestly, Jason, I, I have left, I left queer theory behind. I moved on to suicide bombers in the Middle East. I was doing some great anthropology there. Mm -hmm. And then someone in London was telling me about what happened. And I was incredulous. I thought this person was just another, you know, a crazy person I met by chance. I just thought, no, this can't be right. Oh my God, when I found out that what she was telling me was absolutely spot on, down to local politics and the movement in the UK was very well organized. Oh my, I've never seen anything like it. You notice, like how long was it between 
the abolition of slavery in the States to the end of Jim Crow to, I mean, we're talking decades, but the mm -hmm. trans movement was like blink. <laughs> it was like, I dream of genie, literally. Exactly. Exactly. And there's a load of money from pharmaceuticals companies yes. and from our own. I mean, you know, when I see, I did, you know, work for gay men's health crisis in New York, right at the time when the demographic of AIDS in New York City was no longer gay men. Gay mm -hmm. men, Latino gay men, black, no. It was just becoming a Latino straight and a black straight and a poor straight disease in the States. And mm -hmm. this was around the mid nineties. Bricks mm -hmm. pops along and there goes the mandate. It was like what you were saying when these movements need to maybe scale back. The same thing happens with NGOs. I saw this yes. in Haiti when I was dealing with tra child trafficking uh, organizations. The same thing. They want to keep their mandate going. They want the money, the donors to start flooding into the doors so that they can keep operations on the ground. That's and right. there's a pernicious way. I mean, as one of my colleagues from Tear Fund told me one day, he says, well, it's not that they don't want the trafficking to stop, but they do want to keep rearranging the furniture in the room if you catch my drift. <laughs> yes. And I just thought about this, Jason, because I was just enraged how much trafficking, for instance, was allowed to happen because the pretext is, but we have to keep on good with the Minister of Family and Interior and so forth. And I'm just like, wait a second, <laughs> you've got, you know, there were so many obvious ways to curb what we were dealing with at that time in 2010. The same thing with the AIDS going away and somehow trans came on the heels of that. Mm -hmm. Trans was the new mandate for lesbian and gay organizations that had money to spend and nowhere to spend it. And I That's do right. take issue with anyone calling any of us cis. What the hell does that mean? Boys exactly. who are gay have to battle against gender stereotypes because they've got the whole bloody world and teachers included telling them they're really girls. They should really knit. They should, I mean like, holy cow. And the same mm -hmm. thing with girls. We're told we're tomboys, et cetera, et cetera. Meanwhile, we're being, you know, that that's the sexual uh, part of it. Meanwhile, uh, you mentioned um, that, the drag queens at Stonewall. Well, hey, Jason, that's transphobic because they're not dragging. They're not <laughs> drag queens anymore. They're right. transgender people. Like I wrote a piece for Quillette about the vast transgendering of the dead. And I kid you not, if a woman wore pants before 1970, she's trans because that's what's basically going on. They tried to transgender Marlene Dietrich, who is notably bisexual, Greta Garbo. Yes. Uh, jo Josephine Baker. Exactly. Josephine Baker, yeah. Yes. Yeah. It's gotten to the point of I don't know if I'm reading the onion some days, if you catch my drift. Mm -hmm, it's mm -hmm. it's really um disturbing that there's this ontological and epistemological hold on history now, such that we are taking on the the mantle of victimhood. I mean, we, you know, these cultural victims, these perpetual victims, in order to sort of have a hold on truth. So if I claim that you're oppressing me, Jason, then I win the argument. And we no longer have a need to have an actual debate. We're surpassing it. It's almost like when you're playing Monopoly and you get sent to jail immediately, just go to jail, pass go, do not collect whatever hundred dollars. And it's that kind of mentality that has taken hold. And mm -hmm. I'm, I'm shocked that this is happening within academic walls because what happens 
is when it's released from academia as it has been, not yes. just last summer. I mean, BLM is just one of many examples, not to pick on BLM, but there was this, you said this in your interview, it was really, I also watched your interview with Tucker Carlson over the Jesse Smollett affair and Robin Roberts coverage of the issue. And you said that, you know, victims self-infantilize and to not be a victim means to not be exceptionalized. So yes. beautiful. I mean, why is it that Western subjects are just driven by victimhood now? Well, this is this is the thing. I mean, it's 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 such it's it's it used to be so alien to the I mean to the the, the sort of the Protestant Western personality and uh, and also you know stemming from Catholicism, which um, I mean, I grew up as a well very ethnically because of my grandmother's father was a Sephardic Jew, but she converted. But um, uh, Catholics had a very, very different kind of sensibility that wasn't centered around victimology. Um, I think that what has really, really happened is um, one thing that having studied the Roman Empire quite carefully is that, and I see it in the Z generation, I saw it in the millennial generation, I've been fortunate now to have taught two, two, almost two generations. But I think what's happening is that what I call the civilizational burnout, uh, the, what it takes to maintain a civilization is very, very, uh, it's an awesome, and I mean that in literal word, it's a very awesome responsibility. And we have students, of course, that are the Yale students, they did a, a report on it, are thinking of um, in, um, revising the constitutional constitution of the United States radically because among other things, the, the burden of maintaining free speech and protecting hate speech on a free speech uh, is too demanding. So I think one of, and this is just conjectural, of course, but I think one thing that's happening in our society across the West really is that the burden of maintaining this, what I call civilizational upkeep is just too demanding. And um, we've grown morally lazy and it's far easier to claim to be a victim. And that's the first thing. I think second of all, it's become a cash cow. Um, there is money in being a victim and we, can, we could talk about the roots of this um, I mean, I don't want to place it necessarily in the status of the welfare state uh, because that would just be an easy target. Uh, I think it probably predates that. But I think it, it's, it's paid off in many ways in the sense that people have realized that being a victim grants one the imprimatur of being iconic, an, an icon. So we've iconicized vict victimhood and you have the imprimatur of permanent innocence when you're a victim, which sort of uh, excludes you from any kind of criticism um, because being a victim means that you're innocent. And if you're innocent, you're, you, you, you have almost, um, almost automatic sainthood stamped on your forehead, which means that you're immune from criticism. And again, it goes back to a certain kind of narcissism that is slowly creeping and infecting our society. So I'm not one to sort of give monocausal explanations. I, I as as a, someone in the humanities, I look for a myriad for myriad explanations, and you know, there's definitely a cult of narcissism, a cult of uh, victimology, paying in certain ways financially, um, and I think that the 
as a student of history and of civilizations that I see it in my students that they're 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 literally burnt out. Um, they're tired. They're exhausted. Um, it's become very very difficult for them in a very technologically, increasingly technological civilization to keep that civilization going. I'm very sorry for my students because I tell them I'm 55. And when I was in college, although I had to put work to put myself through school, life was fun. I didn't have the demands placed on me that are placed on you. I didn't have to have a, I didn't have an overly scheduled childhood when I was growing up. I didn't have, uh, I didn't, wasn't expected at 26 to, to begin to think about owning my first house at 27. I had a democratic right to fail when I first came to America. You know, there, were, there weren't all these expectations on me. And they are burnt out. They are cynical. They are bitter by the time they come into the classroom. They are doomed. They feel a sense of doom. And I think all would, this would probably take an entire show to really flesh out properly why victim, victimology is, is on the rise. I think they, they are born, they come out of, dare I say, their mother's wounds. <laughs> and not their parents' wombs, um, with bur- really, <laughs> we're going to get in trouble here. Uh, yes. <laughs> they come out of their, mu- their, their mummy's wombs, um, burdened, tremendously burdened. Uh, and when what does one feel when one is burdened? One feels like a victim. I mean, I'm going to be really paternal here, not excuse the Z generations and the millennials that came before them, whom I also taught, uh, but I think I want to cut them some slack here. They came into a world that really burdened them with a lot and placed very, very, and it's part of late stage capitalism. And I'm not an enemy of capitalism, but I, I do think that there's something quite nefarious and, um, and soul killing about late stage capitalism and, and the way that neoliberalism has in its, in its late ascendant form has really Oh, kill the souls of, of these young people in the demands that it has made on it and in, in, in this and, and and the way that globalism has taken the form of of you know transferring capital overseas where people have lost their jobs. These students, I tell them you're paying forty thousand dollars here to go to DePaul, and all that forty thousand dollars is equipping you is to be the floor manager of a small um, a small retail store not the big executive job that you had in mind. I mean, when you slay out the story like that, people feel like they're victims. The way universities sold in the US, especially since the late 90s, I've noticed there's been a shift in this, how it's perceived. I mean, it was when we went to school still, you get a, you, you, know, you go to the university and then you have options. But I noticed on the subways in New York in the 90s, there would be these adverts like, are you feeling unfulfilled? Get a master's at the new school. And it read like pop psychology plus, you know, throw in Frankfurt school, right? right. And I was teaching Frankfurt school philosophy uh, in my media classes at the new school. I was very happy to be teaching even Edward Said. But yes. when I had a syllabus on Orientalism, at the, I was teaching at NYU. And one of my students said, well, you gave us Edward Said, but why have you put Bernard Lewis? on the syllabus. And I said, well, because Said's book grew out of his critique of Bernard Lewis. So don't you think we should see both sides of the situation? Right. Now, granted, I was much more, um, me, politically, on the Saidian uh, wavelength, let's call it. But I am a huge proponent of reading that which you disagree. Exactly. You can't disagree with something unless you've read it. 
And so I told them, I said, if you're going to agree with anyone, it's because you've read all around the subject. Even if you come to class and you don't have the text read, then you're allowing me to tell you what you haven't read, which isn't right. So why don't you do the reading? And I had secondary readings for them to do if they so desired. But the idea that universities have become ideological boot training camps, you know, Mm -hmm. we're there to now be awoken the students you know I'm, I'm so happy I got out in 2010 and for other reasons but I have to say thank goodness because I would be one of those professors you read about in the times that it got deplatformed or mobbed or whatever I mean you know I recently spoke to Heather Hang who you know she and Britt Weinstein's debacle at Evergreen State University I mean there are serious issues of the students being made into ideological warriors and then Mm -hmm. is it any wonder when that bites them on their rear ends yes 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 and and we've seen that just yesterday are you aware this is great i had the schadenfreude moment of the year and it's only february but alison kerr who's i believe a philosopher american philosopher at St. Andrews, guess what she's done the last many years of her career? She's been one of the major proponents that sex is a fake science. It's not real. Gender is real. So what happens when her contract is not renewed at St. Andrews? There are loads of people outraged. The New York Times wrote a piece about her saying, this is you know, sexist. And she's been pushed out of a field in a, a department she created because two men are there. I <laughs> love it. I'm, I've, I'm about to put up a piece after we talk. I've pretty much finished it basically saying, good, more people like this. And I'm so sick of the women that push this nonsense because as you said, women have babies and I'm so sick of this sex isn't real nonsense, but then they suddenly realize sex when a man has taken their place because all that man has to do according to their own doxa is say, I'm a woman, I'm non-binary, I'm demi-fruity, tooty, whatever, right? Yes, yes. (laughs) So she was, you know, hoisted by her own petard, as they say, and I have no sympathy. And the reason why I have no sympathy is not because I'm some meanie, but I think it's going to take legal cases like has happened in the UK with the recent uh, Tavistock case uh, Mm -hmm. over children being tranced and given hormone blockers that just 10 days ago they found, oh, duh, few, you know, less bone density, growth is stunted, untold other conditions because they were not all tested. And meanwhile, yes, we have to have more Alison Kurz who are shown the door because a man can identify as a door mantle if he wants i mean you know we can identify as anything so she was replaced by a trans a trans woman no no so far we don't know just a female this is how it is now since she doesn't believe in science now the all the media and the petitions are you know a female was replaced by two men well you know, I mean, this, I'm sorry, <laughs> Jason, I just crack up about this because I'm thinking, well, if we were playing cribbage or what other game, like what would a female be worth? Like two pawns or a two jacks? Like she's created this ideology amongst others. She's not the only one where, you know, gender's real science, you know, sex is fake science. Well, now she has it. So this is the real challenge of our era because I have no patience for anti-science thinking. It really enrages me. 
because there are, as you begin, there are real human rights issues. My father grew up in post-partition India, and I think he was traumatized by the partition he witnessed as a little boy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because millions were displaced, were raped, and died. That's now, right. you cannot put that on the same level as, oh my God, Jason, you misgendered me. I'm, I'm calling your employer and having you fired now, because this is what's going on. Yes, yes, of course. Yeah. And debate around the decolonization of courses is cracking me up. I looked at SOAS recently. They've been <laughs> accused of being snowflakes over white philosopher demands, but this is it. Their demands are centering around to make sure that the majority of the philosophers on their courses are from the global south or its diaspora, that SOAS focuses on Asian Asia or Africa, and therefore the foundations of its theories should be presented in Asian or African, uh, by Asian or African philosophers or the diaspora. And if white philosophers are required then to teach their work from a critical standpoint, for example, acknowledging the colonial context in which enlightenment philosophers wrote within. (laughs) The proposals were put forward as part of a campaign at SOAS to address the structural and epistemological legacy of colonialism. Okay. Yet, what I see in what is this kind of pseudo cancel culture by, you know, decolonizing courses, you are intrinsically canceling pieces of your syllabi or who can teach the syllabi. I find this really troubling. Have you seen this? where you are teaching? Well, it's beginning to emerge because I get emails from upper level bodies of the administration saying, you know, have you decolonized your syllabi yet? Uh, DePaul is a Catholic university, so it's still a little bit old fashioned, dare I say, Um, but uh, it's coming because there are what they call the, you know, brown paperback series where you have these radicals that are succumbing to the capitulating to the demands of the students that um, we need to follow in the register of other universities and why is DePaul so backwards in still teaching these canonical texts. So I haven't seen it yet, although I'm getting emails. And I must say that a course that I taught for my specialist, you know, my specializations are in ethics and politics and moral psychology, Um, but I was ready to train as an ethicist first. And uh, I taught a course, but I was I was developing an interest in cognitive co- cognitive and neurobiology. So I taught a course for eight years. I boned up on it for about three before I taught it on um, neurobiology and what's happening in the brain and consciousness and all of that stuff. And and I imported some a lot of epistemology and philosophy of mind in there. And I, a, a couple of times in the last two years, students uh, students broke down some students and said this is white supremacy that you're teaching and I said why and they said well because the rectitude and the intransigence of the scientific method we know we all know is racist and it's white and there's one woman I had to take out of the class and really hug her and console her in the hallway and she wrote a different paper on the epistemology of Native American um, cultures and so on anyway that class was just miraculously taken away from me and I was given a class called sociocultural issues introduction to social justice so I thought you know I'm really going to mess with you people so what I did was I turned the entire course into a study of Camille Paglia's sexual personae um, art and decadence from um, um, Nef- um, Nefertiti to Emni 
Emily Dickinson. And they're reading all of Camille Paglia's works. Um, through art and archaeology, we're going to look at Western civilization. <laughs> and they, I don't know what they're, I don't know what they're making of the course. So they actually took the course away from me because it was too Western centric. So it's coming, it's coming. You know, it's, it's just a matter of time before, um, I, I'll give it a year before the, the philosophy, whole philosophy department. I mean, my, I have colleagues who teach Anna Arendt and Arendt made some, you know, pretty harsh statements about the civil rights movement. And there's an essay I think she has on the, the Negro question or something like that. Uh, just wait until a student of color gets hold of that essay and all hell is going to break loose that Arendt should be canceled. You're listening to Savage Minds, and we hope you're enjoying the show. Please consider subscribing. We don't accept any money from corporate or commercial sponsors, and we depend upon listeners and readers just like you. Now, back to our show. At the end of the day, Jason, who's not going to be cancelled? I mean, I find it not coincidental that many of the people, the most vociferous speakers of the BLM protests this past year were not oppressed white people. I mean, you know, and, and I use this all in, in quotes, especially the notion of whiteness, because one of the things that's bothered me for years has been how all the pretense to talk about racial injustice and whiteness, it's like, wait a sec, maybe whiteness is the problem. Isn't whiteness the biggest myth out there? Because you look throughout history and there's a lot of cultural mixing and there seems to be a lot of protectionism about what whiteness even means today. Like the fact that the one drop rule in the deep South has remained even today. So one yeah. is called black, even if you had a great grandparent who was black, somehow that is the one drop. But we won't talk about the fact that, well, your own country, you know, I have so many friends from Jamaica who tell me most people have no clue about Jamaica. We've got, you know, people are unaware there's German Jamaicans, Chinese Jamaicans. Mm -hmm. I'm like, I know, like people who are not from certain parts of the world have no idea, but then they generalize. It's supposed to all be like Hollywood to them. This is the thing. And um, I wanted to, I want to share a story about, I don't like to impute ill motives to people, but this notion of the abolition of whiteness and the, que the question of whiteness studies, I mean, I think this is all a, a veneer, a appealing, cracking veneer, under which is something very, um, very, very, I, I don't use the word as a philosopher, evil, very often, but I want to tell you a story and your listeners a story of something that was reported to me by a friend. Uh, who is has a sixth grade son, and uh, he is a believer in the pub in, in American public education, public funded education, what I would call government schools. And uh, he's a radical left winger. We're good friends, and we like to spar. And anyway, he's he's because of COVID, he's been unemployed, but he's sort of well off, so he doesn't mind. He gets to spend time at home with his children. And his son was in a Zoom classroom, and he noticed that there was a brown paper bag on on the dining table. Anyway, he inc inconspicuously situated himself so that he could observe his son. And the teacher was saying to the students, all the white students, please put your hand beside the brown paper bag. And if, and they did. And, and she said, if, your if the color of your skin is different than the brown paper bag, you're part of a problem known as systemic racism. 
that harms all black people, including the black people in your class. And then she said, um, and if your color is a different color than the paper bag, that means you're part of um, not just systemic racism, but you enjoy white privilege, which means that you are a practicing racist. This is a 12 year old child that's hearing this. I said to and so he, he slammed down the computer and he sent his son to his room and he was horrified. And I said to his son, do you know what, what is being done to your child? Your child is being made to feel guilty at 12 years old because he's white. Guilt implies wrongdoing. Now, what is your son, what concomitant emotion is your son going to feel when his inchoate, unfocused mind begins to focus towards a tangible object that he perceives as black? Guilt implies wrongdoing. He knows that he's done no wrong at 12 years old, consciously to any black child. He's going to feel hatred and resentment, and he's going to become a white supremacist because his white supremacy is going to be the only form of agency that will protect him against incursions against his agency. And he was horrified. I said, that's what the public schools are doing today in America. Those alt left wingers are producing white supremacy under the auspices or under the ages of producing anti-racist. And he looked at me and he said, he, he finally got it. That his 12 year old son in being told that he was a systemic racist and enjoying white privilege at 12 years old. And, and it, this is going on among not just sixth graders, but I've heard fourth and third graders that he would eventually, by feeling guilty, I said, he's going to feel resentment because no one likes to feel guilty for something that they haven't done wrong. And he's going to feel racist. And he might, said I softened. I said, he might. It's, it's emotions like that that will, could turn him into a white supremacist. And that, what I felt was the cold shudder when he told me that story, you know? Um, and that's, that's the inverse of how this, these anti-racist uh, programs in schools and these, 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 I mean, it's one thing to conduct an anti-racist workshop among adults who are free to sort of just close their eyes or meditate or go off on a daydreaming trip to the Caribbean. But when you have a 12-year-old child being told that if his skin color doesn't match the brown paper bag, he's part of the problem. There's something really insidious and nefarious. It's also racist at heart. Let's stop pretending racism is a one-way street. It's not. And, and I'm thinking of Anthony Appiah's notion of racialism more than even mm -hmm. racism. But the idea that people are basing their every moment upon skin color and this obsession that we've been witnessing over the past few years with race it seems to be recycling a narrative of some of the most, uh, it's a paradox because it's some of the most privileged oppressed people on the planet. I mean, the, the leaders of Black Lives Matters, what have they practically done with the millions they've been given? What effectively has been done to improve racism? And I ask this seriously, mm -hmm. not as a call out. Mm -hmm. uh, I do want to know why those of us on the left the few of us who are criticizing this kind of tokenism within mm -hmm. these, this color culture of everyone's guilty by birth. I, I yeah. disagree with this. I, I've learned a lot more from people who are more to the right of center on this particular issue because the decolonization, of course, is the insistent that 
there's such a thing as a female penis. The call to abolish all history classes also last summer. The notion that I've also seen you spoke on that grammar is racist. Where have we gone that suddenly people taking a pleasure to read books, and I'm thinking back to even Baldwin, you know, who'd spoken about this. Since when has speaking, even the Queen's English, now that's racist? Mm -hmm. How did we get mm -hmm. to that point where, mm -hmm. in fact, this seems to be more ideological output from some really bad university classes? Well, it's, uh, it's what I call systemic nihilism. It's a destruction of values for the sake of the sheer wanton destruction and how that nihilistic impulse, uh, nihilism, factionism, faction, factional nihilism, I think, has always existed in every society. And when it has now become a systemic issue propagated by universities, um, I think it's, it's quite problematic. And you see it, of course, in the, the, the notion of white privilege which one cannot deny that there's privilege there. Look, I have, I've got four college degrees, which including a PhD, which means I have educational privilege. Uh, Usain Bolt, my countryman has athletic privilege. Um, they're beautiful people who have beauty privilege and, um, and people who are very, very brilliant who have uh, intelligence privilege. The question is what are people supposed to do with the privilege that they have? The most that we can ask is that they don't use it to demean and eviscerate other people of their dignity. So when people talk about white privilege, I've taught in the cornfields. I've been at DePaul for 20 years, but I taught kids who were 90% of them were in the Ku Klux Klan living in trailer parks in the southern fields of Illinois. I lasted at that job for a year, but I bonded quite well with the students because I thought I laid down the law, but most of them had their teeth missing, had no access to health care. Um, people didn't really want to talk about working class white poor white kids but those kids had no privilege and i you know i i knew that if any one of them disrespected me as a black man i had access to the law i could just i, I had i had institutional power i could put them in their places uh, it's very very complicated this issue of penalizing people for privileges that they have um it it should be talked about of course and we should be addressing the asymmetries that exist in a society based on privilege that people have, but the idea of penalizing and punishing and shaming people for the privileges that they have because they somehow won out in the cosmic lottery <laughs> um, is, is quite, it's quite disturbing to me. Um, and I think that's a form of nihilism, right? Because what we're doing is we're destroying wanton and destroying people's lives. Um, by subjecting them to these punitive measures because of a perceived privilege that, in this case, white people, that all white people by virtue of their skin color are equally privileged, which is a bunch of malarkey. Like I said, you know, the Appalachian white person up in the mountains with, with all her teeth missing, no access to healthcare with her four kids, um, most of whom are no, don't have internet connection. So they're out of, been out of school since March. Uh, you show me how that person's privilege um, is being manifested in a way that adds up to some kind of privilege that's equal to the New York woman on the Upper East Side in her upper, you know, brownstone mansion. It's these conversations need to be had because people just think that there's some kind of univocal, that there's a univocality that can be applied unilaterally when we talk about these privileges. And I think that's a kind of 
nihilism when we start persecuting people based on these perceived privileges. It's a, it's a different way of thinking about nihilism, but uh, when it results in the destruction of people's lives. I also notice the people doing the loudest calling out tend to be the most privileged. In <laughs> fact, they're the ones that are maintaining their you know positions in universities or on publication staff. Right. They're able to do, I mean, there's a great one in the UK uh, who writes for The Guardian, Owen Jones, the feminist column, Talcum X. <laughs> he's, um, he's really, he <laughs> writes one piece after another about how oppressed he and his trans brothers and sisters are uh, on, a, on a pretty regular basis, calling out, you know, transphobic lesbians and, and women. And I find it quite ironic that the most privileged people have all this time to gripe about, you know, most oppressed people, sorry, have the most time to gripe about privileged people. And the oppressed people I've met don't even have internet connections. So these people have very <laughs> loud bullhorns. Exactly. This gets back to this notion of how grammar being racist. Is this not a stealth attempt to keep people down? Or exactly. is this a way of ghettoizing the very people that often, you know, again, white people are running with this show as well. And they're in very privileged positions. They don't have to show how much money they're making while they go finger pointing around the room at cisgendered evil lesbians. <laughs> you know? mm -hmm, mm -hmm. There's a paradox right there about how class issues are completely ignored. But I don't want to impute evil motives to people because that would be psychologizing people. And that's a very dangerous thing to do, but you can only judge by the actions. The people who are claiming grammar is is racist are the people who have a level of articulacy and a facility with the language that is unprecedented. And they are the people whose children are probably in French schools, by the way, are multilingual, who have a command of the language by the time they're, they enter college that would frighten the very people who are buying into this nonsense, minorities, you know, who are being told, so Rutgers said grammar is racist and we're going to replace it with critical grammar. Well, we know what critical grammar means. It's a, it's a euphemistic term for Ebonics, Black English. And these people are not sending their children to, to learn Ebonics. These people come into college mastering the English language, the kind of fluency that, you know. So the whole, it's again, it's a managerial class who wants to exercise a sort of lordship over an, a vast underclass, which paradoxically maintains systemic whiteness. I mean, these are these are moral hypocrites that have to be called out. Uh, that's why I pointed your, your listeners and yourself to the story of this, this, this paperback, this, this little boy. That's a way of, 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 of it's, a, it's, a, it's a hypocritical way of really maintaining whiteness under the, the, the veneer of abolishing whiteness, because you're really not abolishing whiteness. What you're doing is turning that little boy into a racist who's going to hold more dearly onto his whiteness in a way that he probably wouldn't have done so just unconsciously walking around in a very multicultural, very racially mixed public school. Uh, he probably would have, if he's straight, dated a, a black girl or an, an Indian girl. If he's gay, you've probably done so. And, you know, but now he's going to be so hyper aware of this phenomenon called whiteness because it was called to his attention. He's, he's inversely, he's going to become a racist. So I don't really want to call these people evil because that's that's a word that I, you know, I'm, I'm very 
I'm very aware of how that term has been used philosophically. And I'm a, a good reader of Augustine and the theologian. So, but it's, I use, I prefer to use the term nefarious. Um, and that's why I agree with you that uh, it's, 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 yeah, it's, 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 a, it's like, I, I prefer to use the term of them producing a sort of managerial class. When you say that grammar is racist, you're already inoculated from the fallout that is going to occur from people who buy into that nonsense and think it's racist and don't learn the rules of grammar and speak in a manner that disqualifies them from achieving parity, economic parity with their compatriots. Do, is, that, is that conscious to what these people want? Do they really want to keep minorities down? And I, well, I don't know, but it certainly is going to be the consequence. And are they smart enough to realize that this is what is going to happen? I think so. Well, it's interesting how many of the folks claiming that whiteness is original sin are also very unaware of, like, where does whiteness end? I've, also, I've often uh, asked students this when I'm teaching cultural study courses. Mm -hmm. I ask them where Europe ceases to be white. It's mm. quite interesting when you start to head towards, like, Turkey. Is it Turkey? Is it the Bosphorus? Uh, how far east in Russia? or Russia at all. I mean, you look to 19th century literature and the areas of Poland, what are today Poland, were considered the lands of people who were not white. So where does whiteness begin and end? And then you look to someone like Boris Johnson, and, you know, for many Americans, they're, un they're probably quite unaware that his grandfather was Turkish. Mm. He doesn't, you know, bear, let's say the hallmarks of that per se on his face. Uh, but these are the histories that we all bear. People can look at me and see what they would like. I moved to New York when I was 20. People thought I was Jewish. I mean, you know, the reading of race, as we know from various American uh, writers, especially during the Harlem Renaissance, uh, The Bluest Eyes, I'm thinking of that book particularly, but race is something that has been handed down as a narrative. It's not a real as Darwin you mm -hmm. know, discounted years ago. Yet our, our adopted country's heritage has been grappling with race. And as I believe I read uh, in one of your pieces, you, you, crit you credit the US Americans for working through that. Mm -hmm where the BLM protesters would say the opposite. Oh, why is it that we have these different visions of a country that's bettered itself constantly throughout history to last year's uprisings and the critique that we're not doing enough? Are these about points of view? Let's say ours being more the cup half full, theirs being the cup half empty? Um, I think so. And I think it's just, it's again, you just follow the money. I mean, um, viewpoints such as mine and, and you're, crit you're critiquing from the left uh, don't attract the kind of grants and donations. I mean, um, JC Morgan, JP Morgan is not going to give or viewpoint $100 million the way it gave to, I think, if I'm not mistaken, to Black Lives Matter. Um, so, when you speak from half cup, half empty, you certainly make yourself into more of an attractive, dare I say, mendicant. Um, 
and uh, when you speak in a more optimistic register and and uh, a more optimistic vein and a more hopeful one, um, uh, you 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 comport yourself in a manner that is just not one that is attractive because it's one that either makes you an apologist for um, exceptionalism or makes you an apologist for the greatness or the, the, the grandeur of something that you, that you uphold, uh, which is just not, it's not fashionable anymore. And it's more, uh, today it's more fashionable to tear down and destroy than it is to try to build up and to, and to, and to uphold. That's just the trend. I, I mean, I don't see it changing. I'm not very optimistic, but yeah, cup half full, cup, cup um, half full, half empty is a great metaphor. Um, the half emptiers uh, speak more in destructive terms and in more one of mendicancy and, and, and people also feel good about themselves if they think that they can respond to those sorts of pleas because it makes them think that they're the benefactors of a cause uh, to which they um, can address, and it's it's all it's all quite narcissistic to me, and it's all quite full of a lot of self righteousness. Um, but it's become very very fashionable to be a deconstructionist in not in the necessarily the rigid way, but in the sense of decentering and destabilizing and tearing down um, for a number of reasons. You referred to late capitalism. I've been making quite a few critiques about some of the associated problems related to late capitalism, which I've also linked to identity politics mm -hmm. and to the performance of identity. It's not just that you have an identity, it's how you perform it. And part of that performance is at once then, you know, how is it that women are not supposed to be offended by um, a man who wears a dress who says that now we must call him by his preferred pronoun. Okay, what does that mean to women when at the same point, if you recall uh, Adolf Reed's piece about Rachel Dolezal saying, Rachel Dolezal, good, Jenner, bad, or Rachel Dolezal, bad, I'm sorry, Jenner, good. So that we're supposed to now understand that Rachel Dolezal cannot identify as black. That's bad, but we're mm -hmm. supposed to understand Jenner as great, brave, you know, and I have a problem with the way that we're being given indexes, especially through media, of how we're supposed to perform in relation to another person's performance. Yeah. What happened to my ability to say, well, that's, you want to call yourself Shirley, that's your name, I'll call you Shirley, but I think you're asking for a bit too much for me to follow through and all the rest, because mm -hmm. I still see a guy in a dress, and you yeah. should wear a dress. You want to wear a dress. This is where that term of drag queen, now you can't say drag queen anymore. Or can you say drag queen? Because it depends on who you're talking to. Oh, I say um, it all the time. Yeah, well, I do too. But that's verboten in today's world mm -hmm. that we're mm -hmm. supposed to now assign a gender soul because that's what gender identity is. It's about having this internal soul. And I'm like, uh-uh, I grew up fighting the sexism that was imposed upon me. And I do think also boys have to fight, especially gay boys and in different ways. But I fought to be my person. I want to be a person. I don't want to be someone who is 
said to have an affinity for lace and pink and anything that is considered, you know, an easy bake oven. I don't know. I just, that was not me. I happen to like to bake. I happen to like to sew. I happen to like to, to do a lot. I, I, I changed my car battery the other day and I had an audience around me in the parking lot of the hardware shop. And mm -hmm. these women were shocked. They had never in their lives seen a woman change a car battery. And I was like, oh, it was quite easy. And, you know, I am not a man because I did it. I don't even feel masculine while doing it. At the same mm -hmm. time, I didn't feel feminine while popping out three babies. So <laughs> why have we reversed as a culture towards what were very mid 20th century sexist stereotypes? Because gender to me at a recognizable level, all gender is, is a stereotype. And somehow we've skipped over the last 40 years of our collective history, and I include Flock of Seagulls and Duran Duran, all those weird hairstyles of the 80s, remember that? Mm -hmm. And we skipped all that, and we're back in 1950. How in the heck is it that our, our paradox of cultural belonging has come full cycle to disbelonging, you know, like sort of uh, putting to the margins those people who are now a problem. And this comes back to radical feminists. I'm sure you've seen that stuff all over the interweb. Uh, radical feminists are the problem. Janice Ramon's the problem. Anyone who recognizes that there's not such a thing as a female penis. Mm -hmm. Is it is it really only, you know, uh, a personal perspective of being more optimistic or, or negative about the world? Or might it be also that capitalism is playing a much larger role in how university departments are funded, you know, feminist studies went out the window by the 70s and 80s and was replaced with gender studies and cultural studies. Uh, Africana studies came in and out went other categories of studies. And, and it's all in the cyclical wave to get students to sign up to, as you so rightfully described earlier, a degree that might allow them to be today, in today's market, a manager at a shop right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think those all of those things are absolutely are absolutely correct and uh, and I think too that uh, what's going on is there are a couple of things too that that I might add to that. One is that um, everyone wants to have his or her cake and eat it and and we can't we can't do that. It's childish to think so. And by that I mean we in a grown-ups realize that proper adults realize that there are always concessions that one has to make as we navigate through life and that there's a healthy degree of compartmentalization. Um, I love Irvin Goffman, the great sociologist, because he talks about the persona and the masks that we wear and, and without sacrificing necessarily our, our authenticity. And um, as adults, we realize that we, 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 the, the world is not an extension of our living room. In, our, in the privacy of our own homes, we can, you know, we can have access to the plethora of our identities and we can sing in the shower and we can, we, can, we, can, we can role play. But when we get out into the world, there are certain parts of our identities that are concealed. I think today's young people, really, from coming to my classroom in their sloppy pajamas and their sweaty sweatpants and, and funky hoodies, um, think of the world really and uh, as an extension of their living rooms in the sense that they want to have 
access to every single sphere of their identity and impose it. And this, you see this in the trans movement. You see this in so many movements and transpose it on the rest of society. And it's quite childish to think that the world is a dumping ground or repository for of your living room or of 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 your of your corporeality of your body that you can just so the world has become progressive paradoxically i think as the world has become the western world has become more progressive and more accommodating of people's identities and that's a good thing the bad side is that we have a world in which the demands concomitantly come with certain laws and mores and mores that are imposed on not necessarily dissenters, but the rest of society that doesn't necessarily accommodate to those mores and norm mores. So you have trans people who, or you have gay people, or you have any number of people who uh, want to transform the world exactly according to their image and the world must behave with almost calendrical exactitude according to how they want the world to be. It's like a two-year-old stamping his foot uh, in the store. I want the candy and I want it now. So with progressivism and with a kind of leniency and with a kind of permissiveness, I think has come, um, I want my cake and I want to eat it too. And uh, society has allowed this. So I think this is part of what we're, what we're seeing. Um, and 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 that, I think that that speaks to the magnificence of Western civilization that, uh, with permissiveness and progressivism, has you know has that we've allowed few and fewer people to have to wear the persona and wear the mask that we can be more authentically who we are, and express ourselves and be ourselves in a public sphere, but it comes at a cost. Um, and the second thing I think is that. Um, what I call magical thinking, wishful thinking, that the primacy of consciousness over existence, that people just make stuff up. I mean, I'm shocked at the way that students just make up words in my class and say, like, I'm in one of my classes, I'm teaching, we, we've left Aristotle and Plato and Mill and Kant, and they're really, really happy. And we're on, now on the contemporary stuff, animal rights and abortion and terrorism. And there's a, a particular feminist writer whom I like, Claudia Card, and we're doing Virginia Held on terrorism. And Virginia Held sort of just like dismissed the definition of terrorism as a patriarchal, um, horrible definition. And the students, each student just made up their own definition. I said, you cannot make up your definition of terrorism. Uh, and they said, terrorism is just, is conflated with war, war and terrorism. And I said, where's this coming from? And I said, well, this is just how I feel. And I said, but and this is, you know, I use that example to show that people make people make stuff up, that there was a time when concepts had a kind of specificity to them and they adhere to reference in the world, that concepts correlated with existence in the world that you could point to. But now people are just free to make stuff up. You know, I, I wake up one morning and I feel this way and then you should call me this thing. And if you don't call me this thing, you can get fired from your job. Um, so those are two observations that I have made. And I'm, I'm, the, the, the latter part is more frightening. The first part fascinates me because I do think that one of the wonderful things about Western civilization and well, the latter part of the West that has come. So let me speak positively about some aspects of late state capitalism. There's so much of it that's nefarious, but part of the late stage of late stage capitalism, the performance 
is that it has come with a certain amount of freedom, right? We, I am a, as a gay man can announce to my class that that I am gay. I don't announce it to them, but sometimes it comes up when I say, yeah, and you know, speaking as a gay person, and I don't have to hide that in a Catholic universe anymore. I don't have to hide certain aspects of who I am. I can perform those in the world, and that's a good thing because it means that I can be, I can bring my partner to the, um, to the the faculty party and it's in a Catholic universe, it's fine and introduce him as my partner. And so there's a way I can perform as a human being that makes me feel more authentic. So I think that part is, is quite wonderful and quite beautiful. But then when that translates into a kind of orthodoxy on my part that now you must respect and you must adhere to certain protocols in that conform exactly with how I conform in the, or how I perform in the public sphere, then we get into a bit of a, of, of a problem here, especially when, we, especially when we talk about dealing with religious people and the conflicts that people who hold religious identities might differ. There, there we might just have to have different reasonable, people might have to have reasonable disagreements. Um, people hold different metaphysical beliefs and I'm a, I'm a, a strong believer in the philosopher of John Stuart Mill that so long as those metaphysical beliefs don't contravene in the public sphere and they don't violate the rights of others um, and I'm not eviscerated of my dignity, we, we might just have to disagree to dis agree to disagree. Um, but that, do you understand what I'm saying about that late, late stage part of freedom and, and performance that comes with permissibility and a kind of laxity that's a wonderful part of the the gay rights movement, the women's movement, um, has as also has an underside to it that that breeds a kind of narcissism and a kind of infantile expectation of other people to perform exactly the way you want them to perform in relation to the freedom that you now have. And when they don't perform exactly, you stamp your feet and you get very very angry. Intellectually, we seem to be at a impasse where. There seems to be an established sympathy for the oppressed class always and permanently. And yes. that makes all debate impossible, Jason, because, I mean, you know, who's going to win? We go back in history. Whose ancestors were oppressed by whose ancestors? You know, like it becomes like one of those games that you see as a child where someone says, you can't trespass this line because it's my property. And, you know, children uh, playing who, who did worse. I don't know uh, what the answer is, but I'm not very optimistic about how to get out of this embroiling non-dialogue that the left sort of started now. And we're seeing the right offer ways out, but the left can only say, safety pin. I know, Julian, it's hard. I don't know. Um, I, I think well, conversations such as we're having and bold and courageous people from the left having these conversations uh, without fear of punitive measures are absolutely necessary. I mean, I think when independent conservatives such as myself speak, um, we don't really have the kind of traction that people who critique from the left um, tend to have. So, but people who could, and I know because I know that, you know, most of well, not my immediate colleagues in my university, but I 
most of my friends actually are academics or people from the left who are terrified. These are good, robust thinkers who um, are very nuanced, um, are old school, old fashioned, who do not think <laughs> grammar is racist, who do not think that sex is a fiction, but are petrified. And um, how we rest ourselves or how we emancipate ourselves from that fear because it's the bureaucrats who have given into the demands of the students and the students themselves who um, are being socialized under the, the auspices of, of their teachers. So something has to give. I, I, I mean, I, I'm a little bit radical in the sense that I, I, I think that, you know, there should be some sort of public defunding of under the guise of child abuse of, of schools that do not teach both sides and equip students with critical thinking skills. I mean, I teach Marx alongside when I teach my political philosophy class and I start from Hobbes and I go through Locke and Rousseau and Kant and then I get to the 20th century and I teach, you know, I teach, um, I teach Marx and I teach, um, I even teach the, the Fabian socialists <laughs> alongside Ayn Rand and von Mises and Hayek and, uh, and contemporary socialist thinkers. And I do not politicize my classroom. They don't, unless they Google me, they do not know my political sensibilities. And I, 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 I give them the critical thinking skills and I'm not doctrinaire. I think that when you, when you criminalize thought and you criminalize reason and logic, and some sort of action has to be taken because you are crippling the conceptual apparatus of a, of a student. Um, and the pr whole purpose of a university is to give a, an individual the navigational skills to, to, to make him, his or her way through life. And so I'm, I'm a little radical in the sense that I think that a, a justified case can be made for defunding those humanities and social science departments, not for teaching, uh, left-wing ideology, which is no crime, but for, uh, but for criminalizing uh, reason and logic and, and criminalizing conservative thought and indoctrinating students uh, for the most part um, with just one perspective and penalizing them uh, for holding other perspectives. Um, I'm not sure how, how far people would wanna support that, but I think some sort of and encouraging parents to become more involved in their students' lives. I'm, I wanna just briefly say that most parents I know in good faith have handed over their, their children's continued socialization, which is a wonderful thing. I mean, I used to be up until quite recently, a big advocate of government schools because I thought that this is one way that continued socialization um, happens that parents don't have a coercive monopoly on the socialization of their children. It continues in the public sphere and that's, that's a good thing. Um, but parents need to be more aware of the kind of malarkey and the, the nonsense that, that, that is being thrust upon their children. And I think that's a good place to begin that public awareness, parental awareness. Um, I can't tell you how many parents now are just appalled at, because of COVID of what their children are being, um, or how their children are being taught. It's not so much what, it's the manner and the kind of 
aggressive, aggressive manner in which they're they're they're, they're being taught. So before we get, I'm a you know I'm a, an advocate of limited government involvement in anybody's lives. So I think parents should really really be aware and and then make certain demands of the schools. Um, again, you don't want parents sort of. That's why you send your child to school to be taught. You don't. I don't. Want parents intruding too much or trespassing too much. But I think we've, we've, we've crossed a threshold where the student, the, the, the institutions are abrogating their responsibility, their responsibility to, to equip children to really truly learn. I remember when I went to graduate school, there were very few people who paid for their graduate studies. And today it's less and less the case. Mm -hmm. These are, these are, gosh, uh, they're, they're big ka-ching cashiers full of willing victims to you know pay over large sums for advanced degrees even now and to be schooled in what they're being told is the thing to parrot and what worries me is that you know undergraduates are still most of them are legally adults but it's that that slippage point of age where Yes, parents don't want their kids to be working at the 7-Eleven down the street because they think that this degree will help them and that even if they can't afford their child's education, that these children can take out student loans and pay them back. And it's all with the hope of the dream of tomorrow. And mm -hmm. part of that hope isn't only being able to get the job from, you know, the movies that were all being shown. I mean, how many movies are made about people who work selling carpet cleaning products? Not exactly. many. Right. It really is a question for the left to pose itself as that should be criticizing many vehicles uh, that are going on within the advertising aspects of higher education. Why is it that the only ideal that kids are getting is to be an art director and a filmmaker, a film editor, a, you know, a head musician of a band or whatever. And yet the, the majority of the jobs will not be these. And, and this even calls into question if we will see, especially post COVID, a huge reduction in the number of students going to get degrees, given that Google's made no secret of the fact that it's hiring and wants to hire people without higher ed degrees. Now they mm -hmm. find them to be the most, easily maybe malleable they didn't say that in the article i read but they're the easiest for them to work with mm -hmm. and uh i have to wonder if maybe we have to rethink how we use higher education let's say as parents how uh, we teach in higher education and support our colleagues who are getting lambasted i don't know if you followed what's happened at nyu but there's a professor there mark crispin miller who has been lambasted for querying the effectiveness of masks. Hence, there's a, a legal case he's launched against his own colleagues for defamation because you can't even raise obvious questions that aren't saying that masks aren't safe or not, you know, he's not a COVID denier or anything like that, but the hyperbole mm -hmm. is, is such that people are willing to believe anything. And mm -hmm. so the non-critical thinking isn't just within the university walls, it's spread everywhere. So all we oh, yes. have to hear is a small YouTube blip and say, oh my God, he said Bruce Jenner, he used his dead name or her dead name or whatever, you know, and then you get into this whole spiral of how are we supposed to refer to G Bruce Jenner? And it's, wait, wait a sec, 
this is a person with enormous privilege who won, mm -hmm. you know, major medals for the United States years ago. That's my first memories of the Olympics were Bruce Jenner winning his medals. And I just think we've sort of jumped many sharks mm -hmm. if we can't come together as a society and say, wait a sec, there seems to be an authoritarianism at best, but even totalitarianism within these walls where anything to the right is considered bad. But mm -hmm. here's what I, my proposition is. What if the left is the new conservative class? And I've posited this, you know, over the last year, if not two, because I'm seeing the whole revitalization of gender stereotypes coming uniquely from the left mm -hmm. is one of the most conservative, and I mean far right things I've witnessed in my lifetime. I, there is no way I can even match that up with the left. This is far right docs about primarily women's bodies and what women and girls really are, ha ha ha. And I say that all in quotes because there is no space for women to push back because we're immediately told on social media, die in a fire, bitch, you know, and there's horrible things that are said to any woman who says, but humans are sexually dimorphic. Uh, women give birth, men do not. And then it repeats and rinses all the slurs. So we're in this point of the only way that people feel like they have some kind of currency, even symbolic in the lack of economic currency, is to be woke, especially on Twitter and other social media spaces. And this yeah. is why late capitalism figures so closely in the absence of money, a roof. Most kids can't get a house today. We're going to see the home ownership rates plummet now because language is cheap, right? Mm -hmm. Very cheap. Yeah. Uh, I'm glad, I love that point you made about the, the, the left being the new conservative class without even realizing it, um, slipping back into a kind of old-fashioned essentialism that it was the the left that used to challenge that kind of rigid essentialism that was in that was imposed by by the right by conservatives and you see of course you see that kind of essentialism and the, the taking of identity so seriously you know that's being evinced by the left today it's, the irony is really not lost upon them but it's true
Thank you.